it is crazy how many of these things that he's talking about in this book overlap with what we think as Christians. Yeah. Because he's writing this as an evolutionary biologist, mm-hmm. at least at the time. Hello, and welcome back to Lessons Learned. My name is Dylan. And I'm Evan. And uh, welcome to week four. It's kind of a, it's kind of a, a, new, a new experience that we've made it one whole month so far. Yeah, just about. But uh, I'm excited. You've, you've kind of briefed me on a couple of the quotes that we're going to talk about today, and I'm, I'm pretty excited. It should be good. Yeah, this is going to be a tough one. Oh, um, boy. <laughs> He's kind of getting to the end of all of his neuropsychology stuff, mm-hmm. and he's getting ready to go into the mythical side of things and interpreting myths pretty much, it okay. seems like. So this is going to be a lot of the summarizing and final conclusions, I think, Oh, of, of, like everything? His, of his neuropsychology stuff. Okay. So if you're ready, I'm ready. Yeah, I'm, I'm good to go. Lay cool. it on me. All right. Well, we'll start pretty easy. The first quote here is that the right hemisphere, oh, sorry, for context, he talks about the brain a lot, and I did we talk about how he uses these, like, EKGs and stuff um, to measure the brain? Did we mention Not that? Not that I recall. Okay, yeah. So he goes pretty in-depth talking about how we can look at these, um, these graphs of brain activity. Mm-hmm. to see how people's brains initially respond to new stimulus. Okay. Yeah. Um, and he talks a lot about that, and there's like MRI kind of things where they can see where that's happening in the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, not just when, but also where. And from that, we learned a lot of stuff, so that's kind of the context for this quote. Um, the right hemisphere governs our initial responses to the unknown, while the left is more suited for actions undertaken while we know what we're doing. Okay. So basically, the right hemisphere, I mean, yeah, it's the unknown, ter- unknown territory that we've been talking about. Yeah. It's really good at analyzing more abstract patterns and stuff in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once we start to understand that stuff, then the left side of the brain just takes over pretty much with like the day-to-day stuff. Yeah. I mean, that tracks with what we generally know. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but the right side is known as like the creative side and the left side is like the logical side. Yeah. I think it lines up with this. Yeah. And I... I 100% agree because if if the creative aspect of your brain is handling the unknown, I mean, that's what creativity is. If you have a blank canvas, that's unknown. You don't know what mm-hmm. you're going to paint. Yeah, I mean, you might have an idea, but you don't know how it's going to turn out. So that's absolutely the unknown. Right. And it's, yeah, it's practicing creating new things Yeah, as well. That's not really what the left does Yeah, on the left side of the brain, according to this stuff. Right. But I mean, like I said, it, it just all tracks, I think, with just yeah. everything we know. Yeah. And to be clear, this is back in like 1999. Mm-hmm. So some of the information could be dated. Sure. But I think it's mostly right. Yeah, I I mean, I mean, you know the book better than I do. I, I don't see how this could go in a direction where he's going to necessarily date himself. 
at least no. at least harshly. No, I don't think so. And really, all this neurological stuff is is kind of the whole goal of his book was to take the mythological structures that we see in like Greek myth, Sumerian myth, all of these things. And he also includes Christianity in that Mm -hmm. he's trying to take all of these that aren't based in physical reality. Yeah. Necessarily like the moral laws that we can get from it and stuff. It's not like something physical. He's trying to connect the stuff that we see in myths to some sort of empirical data. Okay. Um, So that's why he goes into like how the brain works. Cause he's trying to say, well, this part of the brain's where we get, trying to discover this meaning right and it's okay. like the most ancient part of the brain so is he trying to pull abstracts from this he's i think right now he's just laying groundwork sure but yeah pretty much he's showing how we interpret the world mm-hmm. so that then he's going to connect that to say okay well then here's why the sumerians said this with marduk gotcha. or here's why christians say this about god and so okay that's kind of his goal um so yeah we'll continue with that stuff and then, depending on how far we get in this one, we'll either continue with this kind of thing, because mm-hmm. there's some dense quotes here. Yeah. Um, or if we get through all this, the next episode, we'll get into myth, Ooh. which should be exciting. Okay, okay. So, episode five is a hit, hit or miss on whether we're continuing or yeah. starting a new content. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, next quote then. I think that one was pretty clear. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a fun one, so I'll treat it straight through. The observation of action patterns undertaken by the members of any given social community, including those of the observing subject, therefore necessarily allows for the derivation and classification of provisional value schema. And what I'm going to do with this one is basically say that when we watch people act, that's where we get our values from. Is that what it says? That's the really, yeah, basic version. So the observation of action patterns... (laughs) Just watching people act, um, undertaken by the members of any given social community. So that could be like a college campus, that could be your family, your friend group, it could be people on the news, whatever. That it could he's be just covering that it happens in all bases. Yeah, any given social community, including yeah. those of the observing subject, so the person that's watching. Right. Um necessarily allows for the derivation and classification of provisional value schema. So pretty much you can look at what people are doing and figure out what they value. Right. Okay. And he goes further in the book to say that that's also how we learn mm-hmm. is by seeing how others act. And then in effect, then how other people act determines what we value mm-hmm. because we see how they act then we act that way. Then that's what we value. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I mean like, it it obviously I feel like it obviously that makes sense, mm-hmm. but to kind of um, put it in a more tangible situation, um, I the first thing that's coming to mind right now is like going into the gym, mm-hmm. um, or in the very least seeing somebody come out of the gym. Right, it is important for that individual more often than not to be healthy. Right, right. they're usually coming out of the gym or going into the gym because they are either a healthy or trying, b trying to get healthy, and are well on their way. Or c, unfortunately, for vanity, when they just want to look good. That's that's another thing, but obviously that you can extrapolate mm-hmm. what you want with that information. But I mean, I think about it. Um, 
with with that being in mind, I think about like your parents. If your parents are gym goers, mm-hmm. right, and you see their friends go to the gym or or that's in your community to some extent, especially at a young age, it's going to be placed in some regards to you as important. Definitely. And I think that's why it's really that that right there is really why it's so important to surround yourself with great friends, you know, great people. And most importantly, be that that thing you seek out because when you do raise kids or even if you're if you if you don't have kids if you are affecting young minds like one it's a pleasure mm-hmm. it's an absolute pleasure to be able to discuss with a young individual um and i know we're young but younger right. you know right, right. it's a very influential point of their life and why wouldn't you want to do it for their benefit you know why wouldn't you want to inform mm-hmm. them on on a good behalf but more importantly i think that's kind of what at least most churches, especially the one we're going to yeah. strives to do is like they strive to make this community. So you're surrounded by people that have high ideals, high dreams and stuff. Mm-hmm. And even though we're imperfect people and we will fall short, mm-hmm. it's just that standard that's constantly being set by your peers. And even when you fall, they're going to help you back right. up. And I think one, so one, I have two things. One really good example of that is the whole thing where if a parent is with their little kid and they're crossing the street or waiting at a crosswalk, Mm -hmm. they don't jaywalk. And if any people come up with them, they also don't jaywalk, even if they normally would, because they recognize that the kid is learning from that. Whether implicitly or not, they don't, they don't Mm -hmm. walk across the street. Um, And then the second thing is, obviously you and I are going through the book of James right now in the Bible. And I think that this relates a lot to that um, Mm -hmm. with how we act, because a lot of what James is saying so far is, you know, you can have your values. That's great, but it doesn't really matter if you don't act on them. Yeah. I think is a good way that that would connect to this. And I think I would say that according to Jordan Peterson, that it also goes the other way around where even if you have these values um, of like Christian values and good things, then those are going to fade if you're acting poorly mm-hmm. and making poor decisions because then you're going to adjust your values to reconcile with how you're acting. Yeah. And you know what else just came to mind as becoming a parent? Hmm. We have, we're in that stage where we're young enough that we're not parents, but we're definitely thinking about it, you know? Sure. And I think something that's really crucial to this is like being able to take what we've experienced and saying, oh, this is what I want to do as a parent. This is how I want my kids mm-hmm, to see. Because mm-hmm. ultimately our goal is to raise kids that are better than us, right? Yeah. Like if we were raised in like, in my example, like if we were raised in a house where it's like, it's okay to eat whatever you want, whatever you're craving. So like unhealthy foods, I don't want that for my kids. My kids will be better than me. At least I know for sure, at least in that sense, mm-hmm. because they will, I will, withhold that from them and obviously i need to inform them and make them aware and explain it to them and teach them most importantly yeah but i think it's super powerful to know that understand you know the observable values of your community Mm -hmm. and the community you make in your own home as a a new coming parent you establish those values which is like i think something a lot of people kind of mess up a little bit along the way of being parents is because it's new. And I feel like that's not quite articulated mm-hmm. within like the young parent community that you are creating a community and you need to establish the values, even if yourself 
you fail to uphold those. If you can reflect that to your kids in a, a really positive sense, in a very aware sense, they're way more or they're way better off than you are. Right. Yeah. And that's sure. just our goals. Mm-hmm. As I think parents. That's the cool thing also to connect it to John mm-hmm. um, and Jesus' farewell message when he's talking about like be one like as a church, mm-hmm. love one another, um, and then people will believe. Yeah. And I think that's at least part of why mm-hmm. um, is because if we show other people how we act as Christians, we're showing them what our values are. Yeah. And if we act with like patience and kindness and everything, um, I think it also makes people more open to yeah. hearing hearing what we have to say. Well, exactly what Pastor said today. That was this morning. Um, if you love others, if you love those around you, mm-hmm. they will know you're a disciple of Jesus. Right. Because that's just generally speaking the inherent Christian value. One yeah. of the most important ones. And that's just, yeah, it's that I yeah it was a great quote. <laughs> I know you picked the next. Like, I know we didn't like wrap it big, in a nice bow. But... It's all a big plan. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Just kidding. It is crazy how many of these things that he's talking about in this book overlap with what we think as Christians. Yeah, because he's writing this as an evolutionary biologist, mm-hmm. at least at the time, and. I talk a lot about it with the guy that I'm going over this book with mm-hmm. is like, he does such a good job of identifying the problem or identifying how things are working, identifying how we see things. Mm-hmm. But we just think that the biggest issue and something to keep your eye out for when I'm going over stuff is he, in our opinion as Christians, he attributes things incorrectly. Yeah. So for example, one thing is, he talks about the hippocampus mm-hmm. um, being the part that helps us understand the unexplored territory. Sure. And he talks about that being the most ancient part of the brain, mm-hmm. um, which would imply, like, you know, evolution, obviously. Right. Um, and <clears throat> he doesn't, he takes it as a presupposition and doesn't explain how, it, or he doesn't show that it was the most ancient part of the brain. Okay. Um, I think it's just in that field such a common assumption mm-hmm. that it's not even touched on. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I think, um, and maybe I'm sure there's there's plenty of holes in what I'm about to say that could be poked. Um, but something interesting that comes to mind is just um, how how many things you have to just like presuppose exist in in this understanding that. Like, for example, Jordan Peterson created, mm-hmm. like he is saying all this great stuff, right? But the idea is that it derives from not God, you know, it derives from like a logical place, which is just unexplained or it's right. just like generally assumed that this is it. And I think you see that a lot mm-hmm. in like culture is like, oh, well, you know, it, this just, it there isn't a root. Mm-hmm. It doesn't go all the way back to something. It just is this way. But how could you not just attribute that to God? Right. And I understand people that are like, well, you know, the, the Romans believe that, uh, da, 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 this God was throwing lightning. You know, the Norse believe that mm-hmm. Thor, the God of thunder was causing thunder. But I think it in, in a society in which we can understand those things on a much more like 
scientific level, I think you ultimately boil down to like there isn't a scientific explanation. So the basic fundamental principle for all of these things, such as how we interact with each other in our community, why do we need to do this? Why does this benefit us? Why is this good? Well, it all comes down to what the Bible is saying. If you read the Bible, it explains it to you. Right. And so I look something up for your sake um, mm -hmm. and the audience, I suppose. Something that we've talked about is the irreducible complexity argument. Okay. And I'll just read what it says on Google. It's the argument that certain biological systems cannot have evolved by successive small modifications to pre-existing functional systems through natural selection mm -hmm. because no less complex system would function. Right. So there's some things that are within us that are just so complex mm -hmm. that, um, and obviously it's a disputed thing, but generally I think I would agree mm -hmm. that there was no other way for them to function except as they currently are. Yeah. I mean, like if you, even if you look at the human race, you know, there's, if you just pick people from all over the world, there's so many variations right. between like skin color, between height, between like bone structures mm -hmm. and all this different, all these different things. And it, yeah, you could argue it's evolution, but why, why haven't like other people, like why haven't people in Africa who are just generally taller, mm -hmm. why haven't they just evolved to be seven foot? They mm -hmm. can't, it's not within the human body confines. And I, I know there's definitely seven, you know, shack, seven foot plus, you know, but I mean, just generally on average, why aren't they hitting seven, eight feet? And it's just because that's not the abilities of the human body. So I think it's almost ridiculous to assume that, okay, so like our human bodies physically cannot withstand, um, uh, what am I looking for? Like I think of Andre the giant. Mm -hmm. They can't, they can't take too many changes before they deteriorate into yeah. not being functional. Well, and just not even just changes, but like, especially size, mm -hmm. you know? So I guess, yeah, changes. And Andre the giant, he really cool guy and stuff, but he didn't live very long, at least not compared to everyone else around mm -hmm. us. So if you look at other animals and, you know, other species and stuff, and you look at the evolution, yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's things that they shift to and adapt to and stuff. You know, I'm, I mean, look at all the cats we have, lions, jaguars, right. leopards. Well, and there's definitely genetic variation. Yeah, of course. But, as far as I understand it, the limit is interspecies. Yeah. One species won't become another, mm -hmm. and different species can't breed together. So you can't yeah. breed a cat with a dog. Well, it's, we, we just can't evolve that way. Right. Like, we can't evolve to grow wings just because we want to fly. Mm -hmm. Even if we needed to fly, we, we built airplanes. You know, we deemed it necessary to fly, mm -hmm. so we built airplanes. And that's something that other animals, species, can't do. But, like, a cat's not going to, like need to fly so it can eat better and it's going to magically you know create wings through evolution right. it's it's just not mm -hmm. within the species capabilities so yeah of course like alter dna's and like slight evolutions in regards to like survivability within your uh mm -hmm. um your location on the globe but but it's limited it's limited exactly mm -hmm. well that's a good tangent <laughs> we can get back on <laughs> track a, with it was such a good tangent with jordan peterson <laughs> um i think you'll like this one because you like forest analogies mm -hmm. so i'll just read it through and i'll explain the context if necessary okay to say here is how these still essentially mysterious phenomena appear to hang together is an intuition of the sort that precedes detailed knowledge 
It is the capacity to see the forest, though not yet differentiating between the types of trees. So this, when he's saying here is how these phenomena appear to hang together, mm -hmm. it's like when you're looking at different concepts and you're just trying to connect them together. Mm -hmm. um, it's like when you have a vague intuition, like, man, that reminds me of this other thing, mm -hmm. but I don't quite know why yet. Gotcha. Okay, wait, so... Can, okay, so now with that understanding, can you break down the actual text, the quote? Mm -hmm. So to say here is how these still essentially mysterious mm -hmm. phenomena, because you don't understand them yet. The unknown, the un understandable. Right. You're still learning about it. Right. Um, appear to hang together, just like how they relate or how mm -hmm. they work together, whatever, however you want to interpret that, is an intuition of the sort that precedes detailed knowledge. So you're just kind of figuring out how these things work together um, before you have any sort of detailed knowledge. Yeah, okay. Um, it's the capacity to see the forest, though not yet differentiating between the types of trees. Gotcha. And I so, mostly just thought it was a really cool quote. Yeah, I mean, it's basically an, an intuition quote, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's in how we can intuit things. I mean, again, I think that derives back to being in community. Mm -hmm. You know, your community kind of shows you this general idea, this general construct of something, right? Mm -hmm. And um, like just for example, your community, there might be a a person here or there that has a tattoo, but mostly everyone's got like what we'll just we'll just define as a tame outwardly appearance, right? Yeah. And then you go to like just a public place like Walmart or something, and then your kid is now exposed to somebody who is like covered in tattoos, maybe dyed hair, mm -hmm. very um, loud outwardly appearance, right? And I think generally speaking, your intuition says there's something off, mm -hmm. you know, and not necessarily that that person's not good, but I think just because of the community you've grown up in is like, you're going to have that kind of judgment of like cautiousness. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that can go with like a lot of things, you know, mm -hmm. I, that can go with into so many different branches, but I think it comes back to why it's important to have a good community that is also well-rounded mm -hmm. and very verse. Well, and when you, when you're younger, I think largely you can really only act on the the vague idea, mm -hmm. you know, or that view of the forest. Yeah. Um, but you don't have any detail of the trees. Mm -hmm. So while you're trying to figure out a lot of those details, I think that when you're younger, that's where your community can help you. Yeah, I mean, even like we're we're twenty twenty one now, and oh, yeah, ages. you and I, not the year. Okay, not the year. <laughs> Uh, soon to be just 21 altogether, but um, I feel like with using the tree analogy, like we can identify most of the trees, mm. but now we've also observed all the vines and mysterious fruits. Sure. And we're like, well, we've learned this much, but there's clearly so much to learn. Right. Who Who is it deriving or who's the quote from uh, Socrates? The more I know, the less uh. I know I don't know. I think you might have gotten that backwards, but yeah. The more I know, the more I know I don't know. That's what I said. Oh, then yeah, yes. you're right. I did say, yes! Oh, yeah! Woo! Is it Socrates? Yeah. Yeah. I, I really like that quote. Um, I think it's just... I think it's just a great perspective. Um, and again, going back to the point of like community, I think that's why it's so important to have such a well-rounded, fleshed-out community. Oh, can I correct you? Yes. And myself? Yes. I want to make sure we got it right. So it's the more I know, the more I realize I know nothing. 
Ah, yes. Yeah. I I knew it wasn't. I knew that was kind of the uh, the slang the kind of yeah. rendition. Yeah. We had the right idea. Um, is it by Socrates though? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I knew that part was right. Yeah, but like like I was saying, like the it's just so important to have community at that mm-hmm. point because if you have a well-rounded community, if you're very inclusive, especially with your young kids as they're kind of in that very learning, like absorb everything kind of phase, the more they can realize and recognize and and so forth and when they go further into their life they can stop using intuition so much and actually make confident decisions that they're not second guessing Mm -hmm. yeah it's like an educated guess versus actually knowing the right answer yeah exactly um yeah so i thought that was a good quote i don't think it pertains a ton to the rest of like the really heavy hitter stuff that he's talking about in this section sure but i thought it was a fun one i liked the analogy um yeah it was good and I'll offer you this one that's similar, mm-hmm. similar vein. This one's a lot shorter, though, and I think easier to digest. Um, so I'm going to say it. It has parentheses that really make it more difficult. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to say it without the parentheses first, and then I'll go back into the parentheses. Okay? No parentheses, then parentheses. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So with no parentheses, before we truly master something, we imagine what it might be. Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay, yeah. Cool. Now we're adding parentheses. You oh, can boy. see what the parentheses do every time. Before we truly master something, which means before we can effectively limit its indeterminate significance to something predictable, even irrelevant, we imagine what it might be. <laughs> yeah. Why? <laughs> Why? The first the first read through, I was like, man, yeah, no, I I totally understand. Yeah. I would enjoy reading a book that was written like that. And then you added the parenthesis, which yeah. it sounded it, it sounded like it was longer than the actual sentence. It is. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean it makes it tough to read, but I think it's just cuz he's so careful with his words. Yeah, well, the last thing you want is somebody to it, the last thing you want is to spend this much time on a book because mm-hmm. it's unclear. I know Jordan Peterson's very smart, but he doesn't even speak in that kind of high level, really mm. dense. I mean, it takes time to kind of whittle sentences down and stuff. So he's obviously like, I feel like he might though. Sometimes in his podcast, it gets pretty rough. Oh, really? But you know, I think like his other books, he makes them a lot more digestible for people. Yeah, oh man, I can't, I would love to meet Jordan Peterson. I'd love to talk with him, but Mm -hmm. I think he would, I think he'd talk, like he'd try to talk with me Mm -hmm. and I would kind of just be drooling out the left side of my mouth Mm -hmm. and just going, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. Yeah. (laughs) I just, man, that's, yeah. Okay. Back to the quote. Yeah. It's a fun one. Um, So before we can truly master something. You obviously understand that part, mm-hmm. uh, which means so. This is what he's defining as mastering something. Okay. Effectively limiting its indeterminate significance to something predictable or even irrelevant. I. So what that means is, um, you're trying to limit its significance, this new object or this new skill or new event, whatever it is, mm-hmm. um, to something predictable or irrelevant, so you don't have to worry about it. So either. You're taking this thing and you are, you're either going to make it relevant Mm -hmm. or you're going to make it predictable so that you can understand it so that it's no longer unfamiliar. Oh, 
okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. And I, I'm mad. That's <laughs> it, dude. That's it. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> so what you can do with that then, um, before we can master it, we have to imagine what it might be. Right. Which means you're going to have this mental image in your head. Um, and I can connect it back to the uh, thing that's much earlier in the book. There's this one lady that's on her way to like a meeting in a building near hers mm-hmm. during the work day. And she's walking and she hears a huge like tire screech and bang behind her. And she thinks, so the first part is she's imagining it. Mm-hmm. That's her imagining what it might be. Yeah. So she thinks maybe like a car had to swerve and crashed and is like going right towards her. Mm-hmm. And it's about to hit her as like, an, it's, there's a couple different examples of what it could be, but that's mm-hmm. one of the options. So she's imagining what it could be. And then she turns around and sees that it was actually just someone that ran into a, um, is that good? Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, what it really was was just someone that ran over an empty pothole. And oh, created a huge I've bang. been there, but I've been there. <laughs> so that's what it means. Okay. By mastering something, if it's determining its significance to something predictable or irrelevant, before we can make it predictable or re- irrelevant, we first have to imagine what it could be. See, I just thought about when I was younger, and I was like, man, I want to play guitar. And I was just like, I bet playing guitar is just like, you know, just like you just do it. Mm-hmm. And then I picked up the guitar. And then, like, 12 years later, I just started trying to actually learn it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, I, I'm back to the parentheses. I'm mad. Because, like, it makes sense, but it is. I feel like it's such an unconventional way to describe it. Yeah. Because we just talked about mastery when we did our devotional together, like, what, an hour mm-hmm. ago? Mm-hmm. And something that I said, and I've, I've been told this before and I really liked it, was, like, you're a master at your field or whatever you're, whatever you're claiming to be a master at mm-hmm. if you can teach it to a kindergartner. Sure. And the idea is basically that you know it so well inside, outside, backwards, so forwards, it doesn't matter. It. That you can water it down to like the literally right. the smallest words, the most basic concept. Yeah. So that even a kindergartner can understand. That's what like in my head, that's always been mastery is like you've mm-hmm. mastered something when you you don't have to think. Yeah. You don't have to go like, oh, yeah, it's like, no, mm-hmm. I just I know it and I can explain it to anybody old, young. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Because I know inside and out, I can use every word conceivable to explain this thing. That's what I'd say is mastering. And I I think he's specifically talking about mastering the unknown. Mm. Okay. Mastering the unknown. Hmm. Okay. How do you master the unknown? Well, according to him, (laughs) you make it predictable or irrelevant. Because something else that he talks about, too, and I think it's later... So, to clarify, mastering the unknown in reference to one topic of unknown, yes? Not it, just all of it. Um, I would say it's like small-scale all of it, I guess. Anything uh, that could be unknown, you're mastering that thing. So, it's like... If computers are unknown, mm-hmm. that's that's mastering the unknown 
But only in reference to I think computers. he's talking about more experientially. Okay. So, like, we saw the we saw a cat earlier mm-hmm. when we were outside. Um, when it, like, stops to, like, see what was going on when it heard us, mm-hmm. that's because it's imagining what could be happening. Um, and then by looking at us, it's mastering the unknown. Because it's saying, oh, they're just, like, two guys chilling there. Yeah. That's not anything I have to worry about. Right. So I think that's the sense that he means mastering it. Okay. Is to be able to say, okay, that's what's going on. I understand that that thing. Mm-hmm. Now I can not worry about it anymore. Yeah, I, I just wanted to clarify because I was like, if Jordan Peterson has figured out how to truly master all of the unknown that ever was, is, and will mm-hmm. be, well, and I, I want think... to know his secret. Well, <laughs> yeah, and I think that's part of... I think this is a solution that could do that, technically. I, in a technical aspect, But that's not sure. the point of it, I think. Right. The point is small-scale, mm-hmm. brand-new unknowns. Like walking into a new room, you're making that new room predictable. It's more... It's like preparedness to enter the unknown with more confidence. Sure. Yeah. Okay. I mean, if it gives you confidence, then yeah. Yeah, sure. Confidence, preparedness, you mm-hmm. know, along the lines of you can make the unknown known quicker and more effectively. Yeah. Or efficiently, rather. Yeah. Okay, so this one, I think, is going to be our first heavy hitter. Mm-hmm. Um, Wait, the other one wasn't... A... Okay, yes, I'm ready. This one's also a namesake quote. It's a what? It's got maps of meaning in it. Like the name, the title of the book is oh. in this quote. So I had to include it. Okay, I'm going to stroke my beard and hopefully that'll help me uh, ponder more intelligently. It certainly will. It certainly won't. It certainly will. It hasn't thus far. <laughs> You're not doing it right then. Um, <laughs> all right, here we go. A story is a map of meaning, a strategy for emotional regulation and behavioral output, or a description of how to act in a circumstance to ensure that the circumstance retains its positive motivational salience or at least have its negative qualities reduced to the greatest possible degree. You know, I actually followed you, but I couldn't recall it. Yeah. I can't repeat yeah. it to you. No, it's because it's a long one, for sure. Okay. That's but, mostly why. So there's there's about three kind of sections there okay, that we could yeah. break down? Yeah. At least that's what it sounded like to me. Mm-hmm. Do you okay. want me to break them down? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So a story or a map of meaning is one, a strategy for emotional regulation and behavioral output. Mm-hmm. So it's you deciding how you're going to regulate your emotions and how you're going to behave. So wait, a map of meaning to clarify. Yeah, or a story. Is, they're interchangeable. He's story using them interchangeably. Yeah. Because his whole point is that stories and narratives tell us how to act. Right. Okay. Okay, got it. Yes, yes. I just wanted to clarify. Um, the other things that are part of it it's a description of how to act in a circumstance to ensure that the circumstance retains its positive motivational salience mm-hmm. um, and what that means is so ensuring that it retains its positive motivational salience is basically saying how to ensure that what's going on remains good for me yeah and so like the point is that a story or this map of meaning will tell me how to act so that whatever circumstance I'm in, it stays good for me. Right. Or 
the part that he has at the end. At the very least, the negative qualities are reduced to the greatest possible degree. Mm-hmm. So, what he's saying maps of meaning are, mm-hmm. or stories are, are stories that tell us how to act to make life as good as possible by either keeping things good for us or avoiding or turning, neg- I would say, negating bad things as much as possible. Gotcha. I think... Which is, like, true, though, because that's... Oh, yeah. That's what the Bible does. Yeah. That story tells us how to act Yeah. in any kind to of circumstance. bad things. To negate bad things and bring up good things. Yeah. <laughs> the first thing that came to mind for me was... um. It was like episode one mm-hmm. or no, it was two. Episode one was placing importance. Episode two was the chaos mm-hmm. in order. Um, and I had mentioned like people nowadays are like scared to enter the unknown of like shaking somebody's hand and introducing themselves. Mm. And that recall makes me recall that memory. And I think it's because I'm just guesstimating. I'm thinking it's because... Um, we're taught how to interact with people, especially in new circumstances, to give us good outcomes, right? Mm-hmm. Or at least negate bad ones. I mean, I my dad never like formally sat me down and was like, this is how you introduce yourself. This is how you shake right. someone's hand. It was just like, it, it, I watched him do it. I watched other men do it. I watched that happen in my life. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that causes positive things. Even like, just going to like uh like we were going to a, a, like a lim- a lumber yard for when we were building our house and it was the first time we were going there and my dad introduced himself shook his hand and tell- told him what he was doing and I was like okay yeah like this is like you should do this everywhere you're going every time you're meeting somebody new because it it's giving you a positive experience if you introduce yourself and you give a, a good firm handshake they're going to mm-hmm. be like oh this person is kind this person is direct i i can do business with them or i can help them etc 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 i can reap the benefits from doing this mm-hmm. um what well, like this ritual of interaction yeah. and your dad didn't tell you that no right and that's the importance of it being a narrative mm-hmm. is that even if you didn't understand that at the time mm-hmm what Peterson would argue is that you understood it implicitly. Yeah. Which is just crazy. It's absolutely wild. And I mean, I think that that's why the Bible is a narrative. Yeah. As opposed to just, you know, a set of how to, like a set of rules on how to live. Because I think there's so much that obviously happens in our lives. Mm -hmm. And so the Bible is a narrative that can apply widely to I would argue any situation mm-hmm. because it covers all the bases yeah. and does so through story. Mm-hmm. Um, and instead of having just like a, you know, like a code of Hammurabi, just like dozens and dozens of rules, yeah. what happens in each specific circumstance, a narrative allows it to, even if it's not the exact same thing that's happening to you that happened to this character, you can still abstract the lesson from it and apply it to yourself. I, for me, prodigal son comes to mind Mm -hmm. because there's the father there's the older brother and the younger brother the prodigal son right Mm -hmm. and the story to summarize basically talks about the prodigal son and that's what it focuses on almost the entire duration but like you can abstract one the prodigal son which is obvious 
two, the father, and three, the older brother. Mm-hmm. And like each character of the story, each um, role that they played and the importance of those roles that they played within the story. So like the prodigal son's story is very important for fathers who mm-hmm. are struggling with, you know, a son that is prodigal, you know, a son that is um, a little, maybe a little spiteful, maybe a little rebellious, you know, mm-hmm. as the father, that story really shows you how to do that. And it, it doesn't give any specific examples. It doesn't say fathers do this, older brothers do this, no. younger brothers, you know, younger sons do this, you know. And I think even the and the way in which we refer to the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. God the father chose, he said, call me father, mm-hmm. right? That is something we call him. I think it's a great example of like what we as men who, look to be fathers or even men who are fathers Mm -hmm. there's your perfect example and that's never explicitly stated right but there's a reason he says it in the same way that jesus is the son because we're all sons and daughters of the father so that's exactly why we live like jesus is because he's referred to as the son Mm -hmm. or in women's cases you know the daughter it's just a path for us to follow through the narrative rather than just Mm -hmm. being told Mm mm-hmm yeah, no, it's crazy how much narratives are used. Oh, yeah. So the next, these next quotes will be talking about the implicit nature of stories, basically. Oh, okay. Um, and it might go away from that a little bit, but okay. that's the general idea for these. Um, so this one, I didn't include all the context for it because it's mostly the second half of it that matters. Um but it's kind of talking about narrative information when he says information. Okay. So much of this information or narrative information is still implicit. That is coded in behavioral pattern. So that's exactly what we were talking about, how there's information that's coded. So it's not explicit in the patterns of behavior that we, Oh, it's just like innate in our, Right. So he's saying that there's information that's Mm -hmm. implicit within the ways that we act. Yeah. Which is kind of what we've been talking about the whole episode so far. Yeah. Um, It is still knowing how before it has been abstracted and made explicit as knowing what. So basically what he's saying is when we hear these narratives, it's like exactly the prodigal something. It doesn't give you a set of rules, but it Mm -hmm. shows how to act implicitly. Um, so you're learning how to know how before you're abstracting the rule and making it an explicit way to live. So you don't know what that rule is, but you know how to follow it. Okay. I think in a more watered term, it's, it's back to the handshake story. Mm -hmm. That was never like a rule. Right. But you could, you could, with time and thought, you could abstract the rule out Mm -hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. But innately, I just, was like, that's what I should do. Yeah. And I, that's man, that happens a lot in life. It, it that that's its point is that it's all the time. Oh, the light fell. Oh, the light that's turning pink. Is it back? That's good. It's very pink. Oh well. <laughs> yeah. Um. <clears throat> I really like that quote. Um, it's really short, and I don't think it adds a ton that's new. No. But I think it frames it in a really good way. Well, I think it um, 
I think it does the thing that it describes doing. Mm. It it abstracts like the thing that we just innately do. Mm-hmm. I think that's what Jordan Pearson's really good at. Yeah. Because when my mom hears stuff that he says, mm-hmm. when I'll just like show her these things, she's like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, but I never would have known how to say that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's exactly what's happening whenever that happens is that he is explaining to us the what when we already know the knowing how. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just minor tangent the fact that he is able to do that so well mm-hmm. is just arguably just mind-blowing like absolutely mind-blowing well i mean he knew this early in his career so like he's been able to spend his whole career or maybe not this whole career but a lot of it mm-hmm. developing this and practicing this and trying to understand the Im- implicit ways that people act or not the implicit ways they act, but the ways that they act, and then the implicit values and stuff that that presents. Oh, man. I see. Which is why, in my opinion, he's moved closer to the Bible, is because he's seeing how much the values that are implicit in the Bible help people. Yeah. Because he already understood that those helped people. Yeah. But now he's tearing apart the Bible and looking into it deep and saying, yeah, those are the values. They're the good ones. <sighs> so you know, some of us are going down paths and lives that outwardly don't express uh, high levels of success, but inwardly it feels higher in success. Yeah, I think that that's something interesting for you as well, considering that you want to be dealing with the narrative itself. Yeah. As like someone that wants to do films. So like that's oh, the, yeah. you're focusing on the implicit stuff. Well, so, um, and I, I forget his first name, but Campbell mm-hmm. Campbell. I don't know how you want to pronounce that. Um, you were talking about him a while ago. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe Bruce Campbell, which guy is this? This is the guy that created the hero's journey. So if you just look up Campbell Hero's Journey, you'll oh, see what God. I'm talking about. But basically, it's this big circle, and it and he figured out how stories are constructed in such that, one, it's a good story to tell and to listen to. It's Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell, yes. Um, and that arc, I, if you have the arc in front of you, if you want to read each step, because um, uh. I can't quite remember them all. Yeah, so I'll go through it quick because yeah. there, there's a couple, couple steps. Mm-hmm. There's the call to adventure, yep. supernatural aid, mm-hmm. threshold or the beginning of transformation, mm-hmm. challenges and temptations. Mm-hmm. There's an abyss where there's death and rebirth, yep. transformation, atonement, and then return. So, and to like nerd out real quick, I think this is exactly why like animes mm. is because that, that circle happens numerous times yeah yeah it's very enjoyable because um the supernatural doesn't always necessarily have to be supernatural but so much is like supernatural feeling Mm -hmm. it's basically referencing a mentor yeah i mean think about how many stories and i i mean shows books um movies it doesn't matter so how many stories fictionally speaking have this mentor that really guides this character Mm -hmm. and the mentor's got this wicked amount of wisdom and 
you or me or anybody as a creator of a story, you really have to put thought into that. Mm -hmm. What's the limitations of your world? Where does your world exist? You know, you need to set these boundaries and, and so forth, especially in a very uh, fictional world, such as the ones in anime, right? Or even like Star Wars. Yoda is that supernatural thing. He is the mentor to right. Luke. Mm -hmm. When Luke goes to Dagobah, and he trains with Yoda and stuff, he gets to the breaking point, the threshold. And a lot of people see that as when he goes into the tree and he sees himself as Darth Vader, mm -hmm. that's his breaking point. That's when he's like, nope, I'm done. I'm out of here. And that's that That's that turn, turn away or turn to fight, you know, mm -hmm. fight or flight response, which is something we all relate to. And I, can, I don't want to spend too much time, but each point of that story, that it's a big arc, um, each point there is very relatable for us mm -hmm. and most importantly it's something that we all strive to do yeah we all strive to be learning from the things that are around us to be broken so we can be reborn and to be better mm -hmm. so that we can continue the cycle and to be able to create that in a narrative to create that in a story is just really thrilling because man you can break a character and that's the best story I mean, think of what Jordan Peterson said to tie this back to Jordan Peterson. Jesus Christ and his story was mm -hmm. the ultimate tragedy. Right. Yeah. And if you look at the story, the the hero's journey, Jesus Christ's life, relatively speaking, follows that. His sure. supernatural mentor is God himself. Mm. That's who the that's who that is. And if you look at all these breaking points and stuff, I mean, you can talk about the forty days and forty nights in the desert. Right. Mm -hmm. That's a huge example. And you can talk about and look about all these different things. But ultimately, when he died for our sins, it's the ultimate tragedy because everybody around him, that community, turned their back on him. Mm -hmm. And that's that's another breaking point for him. That's a huge that's the abyss. Right. You know, as a reference to the story, uh, the hero's journey. Um that abyss, that's it. And it it sucks and it's really it's a great tr uh tragedy right. as jp talks about because it really just is a broken character it's a character that gave everything and had nothing less to give than perfection and love and caring and his own people smited him essentially yeah and to be able to create stories even close to the you know the story of jesus christ even Stories mm -hmm. just that are that gravitating mm -hmm. is I feel like it's a privilege just to be able to do that. Yeah. Well, I think something that interests me, and I don't know if there's a definitive answer on it, at least that either of us would have, mm -hmm. is why it seems like so many animes focus on that. You know, is that interesting? Yeah. I mean, it's it's really interesting. But I mean, think about where anime is coming from. Japan. Right. Well, that's what I mean. Well, it's look like, at look at Honda and toyota mm. they're they're auto culture thing that they focus on yeah well improvement and i and i'm not i don't know a whole lot about japanese culture but i'll tell you this the automobiles that they produce the motorcycles they produce they're near perfection people can't beat them because they have such a small margin mm. of error so as a storyteller in japan if your entire culture focuses around like this tiny 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 margin of error how could you not want to write the perfect story the perfect right. captivating story that could be looped until forever i mean the anime i'm watching now bleach has 26 seasons right and people love it it's it was a rave it was on cartoon network and everything it's huge and hulu is now revamping it again 
right. because it's already such a great story. Mm-hmm. And I, that's exactly yeah. why I, I think the fact that it's still so popular and that a lot of those stories are so popular is that we have some, we have an innate recognition that that's one of the best things to do or mm-hmm. go through, or we, at least we understand the importance of doing it. Yeah. Um, obviously people turn themselves away from it a lot, mm-hmm. but I mean, you can see like the Israelites when they left Egypt, mm-hmm. that's their hero's journey where they're going into the desert and they have all their, all their difficulties and stuff in there. And I mean, it's, I think it's echoed throughout the Bible because yeah. it's just such an important concept to existence. Oh yeah, absolutely. So I like that one. Um, yeah. I want to try to mess up your brain with this one. Oh boy. I'm just going to read it straight through. <sighs> it's not even long. It's two lines. <laughs> the last one was just about as long. Okay. All right. We, we know how, which means we know how to act to transform the mysterious and ever-threatening world of the present into what we desire long before we know how we know how or why we know how. <laughs> so we can probably just move on. That's pretty easy. <laughs> just kidding. That one's tough. Okay. <laughs> oh, man. I so. I felt like I had it right up until he said, we know how, how we know. And oh, yeah, that, that's know. the how and how, how, how. Exactly. Yeah, it's a fun. I like that one. Because uh, it's really cool once you understand it. Oh, yeah. So, according to him, knowing how is knowing how to act to transform the world into what we desire. Okay. So, when he says the mysterious and ever-threatening world of the present into what we desire is his full concept of that. Okay. So, it's turning the unknown into the known. Right. Easy. Um, so, we know how to do that. Long before we know how we know how we do that, which sounds dumb, but Long before to try and say it in a different way. Okay. I mean, it's pretty much what we're talking about uh, how, about how it's like all implicit. We do it innately. Yeah. Yeah. So like we know Just how to change that. things. Yeah, we know how to change things before we know how we know how to change things. Right. Yeah. We we do things innately before we're aware that we're doing it. Before we know why we're doing it. Okay. And that's what he continues with, is or why we know how. Because <sighs> you can say, man, why am I acting that way? And it's but you are. Because you implicitly understand something. Yeah. But uh, you don't understand, like, consciously. It's just, it's, I mean, it's like a enjoyable game of semantics, almost. Yeah. Because he's he's really picking apart just everything, everything, mm-hmm. and like some of these quotes are definitely bigger that we can really discuss, yeah. and some of them are it's just like yeah, no, it's just it's adding, but it's right. Well, and I like I actually do like that because I think it's something that a really good teacher can do mm-hmm. is hit the same concept multiple times, yeah, in different ways, yeah, to either help the people that didn't understand it the first time, or to go back and enhance the understanding of the same thing, yeah. It's like if you had a mountain, like if the understanding is the mountain, mm-hmm. instead of just having a picture of one side of it, you're getting a 3D view of the whole thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, ah, oh, man. Yeah. Your, I think your teacher analogy rings true with me so much because, like, my favorite teachers were able to explain it five ways to Sunday. Right. So everybody was on the same page. Actually, one of my favorite teachers was like, 
every time they taught like a major concept and they didn't do this on the minor ones just because you know but on a major concept they'd explain it one way and then they'd say who doesn't understand and wants a different explanation Mm -hmm. so you know i it it, it, great teacher so about like let's say 40 percent of the classes hands went up all right so then he explains it another way so even if you understood it you could try to learn it a different way that might click with you even better or just further your understanding of it and he would do that usually two or three times but he's done four or five times and i was blown away that he had five different ways to explain one simple concept yeah and if you want to talk about being a master that's how exactly that's exactly how that's exactly my point of like i think that's what makes you a master Mm -hmm. is like that incredibly high level of understanding to such an extent that Mm -hmm. you can explain it to the like the lowest level feasible yeah so that's a fun quote it's just incredible (laughs) yeah i think a lot of these concepts are just ultimately like what an incredible concept Mm -hmm. to be able to like enjoy in discussion you know yeah well and here's another short one that (laughs) feels long um and you'll understand the first word i know because it's in another book you've been reading Mm -hmm. um mimetic propensity expressed in imitative action provides for tremendous expansion of behavioral competence allows the ability of each to become the capability of all I heard mimetic and I was like, I know that word. And then, and then like, I wasn't yeah, listening. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so, Not okay. that I would understand it the first time anyways. Um, so obviously, as you know, mimetic is like learning from others. Yes. Which is in Carl Truman's Rise of the Triumph of the Modern Self. Mm-hmm. Great book. Um, which is how we understand it. So the propensity to do that. Mm-hmm to like learn things from your culture um expressed in imitative action so okay yeah so the propensity to learn from like what's going on your around you um expressed through imitation mm-hmm. which is, i don't you could just say that but um provides for tremendous expansion of behavioral competence so he's saying you can greatly um expand your ways of acting by imitating what other people around you are doing oh yeah because like then you don't have to figure all this stuff out by yourself well what's learning right and then so this the end of that quote is allows the ability of each each being individual Mm -hmm. uh, or the individual allows the ability of each to become the capability of all so our ability to learn from each other Mm mm-hmm makes it so that we don't have to figure everything out by ourselves all the time um and i think yeah what do you think about that i think that's pretty awesome yeah (laughs) um besides just geeking out about it um oh man i had something on the tip of my tongue and the camera made a noise and i kind of got worried but it's okay (laughs) the camera's okay um ah shoot well here's what I think. Yeah, go for it. Um, I think this, he talks about language in this section as well. Mm-hmm. And how we teach each other through language mm-hmm. as well. And I think something I wrote down in my book that I want, I didn't end up using the quote, but this is similar, um, is the importance of free speech. Mm-hmm. 
because and the importance of like not controlling speech yeah. because if you're controlling speech then you are controlling that's the you're controlling the behavior that is disseminated and therefore the abilities of everybody ah. so with free speech then you are allowed to um expand behavioral competence to the utmost degree yeah <sighs> just just so i can put this out there every time evan explains something and you just hear me sigh it's because i understand it but i'm already so tired of understanding everything up to this point mm. that i just need a minute to like sit in the hot tub of knowledge the hot tub of knowledge i like that yeah you know what i mean like when you get a hot tub and you just like you don't like do anything. You just like your first couple minutes of hot tub. You just like, and you just sit. You you know you just take that minute. Take it in. Yeah. Let it soak in. Let it soak in. Mm-hmm. So back to the. Did you just read a second quote? No. Okay. You're just that smart. I understand now. <laughs> so. I don't know about that. The quote that you just read. Yeah. So. Tying it back to the very beginning is like the importance of having a well-rounded community, mm-hmm. and maybe that's numerous communities. You know, well, it's also having a mentor. Yeah, like we've talked about this before, is how much quicker you can learn something oh, yeah. from the people that have already learned it all mm-hmm. instead of trying to figure it all out by yourself. Imitating, imitating was the word that got me. Good. Okay, okay. Um, so it, it's interesting because. Uh, and I, I, I don't know how confirmed this is, but I've I've read a couple times that when you become closer with a friend, that you kind of imitate them, especially the things that you like about them. Mm. So um, something you would do, like that I picked up on when, <laughs> when we first started hanging out, uh-huh. was anytime you'd laugh, you'd kind of throw your head back. Okay. <laughs> um, and sometimes you would like put your hand over your heart and you go, <laughs> and when I, when I went home for christmas break last year yeah i started doing that <laughs> okay. um yeah but to put, put this in a more like applicable perspective to learning um uh think about like father and son mm-hmm. when the the son's imitating the father because like dad dad fixes cars mm-hmm. dad does this dad does this so the son's always imitating the father because like He's successful, so if you just copy that, you, it'll lead you mm-hmm. to success. And I think that's why a lot of younger brothers imitate their older brother. So everybody that's an older brother out there with a younger brother who's annoyed, don't be. Because they see you as successful. Mm. And that's where this is coming from. I mean, think about it. If you're, let's say you're like 12, right? And you have like an 8-year-old brother. You know, there's enough of an age gap there that he's definitely looking up to you. For sure. You're successful, but you're only successful in his eyes because he perceives the amount of knowledge you've had, i.e. the four years that he doesn't have, the friends you've made, the things you've learned, the wisdom you've gained, mm-hmm. which, you know, in our perspective and is, is much older people's perspective, it's like 12 years, eight years, like, dude, like half my age. But for that younger brother, it's like, whoa, like my big brother's got that experience like he knows like Mm -hmm. for simplicity's sake video game he knows how to play the video games really well he knows the cheats and stuff let me just imitate him yeah we just copy him do exactly that because he's successful Mm -hmm. 
So, and that's something I wish I understood way, way, way sooner in life. Sure. You know, like, I really wish I understood that because like, it's crazy for me. So I, in high school, I was on our knowledgeable team, which is like for everyone listening, it's just a team based Jeopardy game pretty much. Yeah. And (laughs) the way to get good at that game is to pretty much learn about a lot of random stuff because it's Jeopardy. Um, so I would, I would spend hours every, pretty much every night, at least during the week, my junior and senior year of high school, just studying. Um, that's kind of gross. Just learning things. (laughs) It was enjoyable enough. I learned all the Shakespeare plays. I don't remember them anymore, but that's, (laughs) I, I learned and read every Shakespeare play. Yeah. I mean, the point is that I was just doing that to get really good because I wanted to win mm-hmm. the game. I wanted to be good at the game. Um, so it was worth putting in the effort. And, you know, I we had a good enough season. COVID ruined it for the mm-hmm. state championship, but we would have won that. Um, and I left and went to college. And then my brother, who's two years younger than me, joined. he joined the team my senior year and kind of watched me play a little bit that year. And then he took up. Um, as a junior, he was on the A team, and then his senior year, he took up the mantle as like the lead guy, mm-hmm. the lead, the lead player, because he was really one of the only returners mm-hmm. after all the end of this COVID stuff happened. Um, and he did really, really good, and I was impressed. And like, man, like he popped off. He worked really, really hard and like made it happen. Um, and I, I was proud of him for it. And then I was reading one of his. It was his application for the Common App, um, which is like a way to apply to a bunch of different colleges at once. I don't know if it's everywhere, but it's at least here in Colorado. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the essay, he talked about how he saw me working hard, and he was inspired by that to work hard in his own academic team in school. <laughs> and I was like, mind blown, because I was like, I had no idea. Yeah, I was just, I was just practicing. And studying to get good. Yeah. But the whole time he saw that and he was learning from it. Yeah. And arguably did better than I did. So. Well, do you remember when we first, um, when we first started just hanging out, becoming friends, and you noticed that I was like, I'd always watch YouTube all the time, mm-hmm. and like in my family and a lot of the people I grew up with dismissed that as just like as lazy. Like I'm just watching things. But you saw what I was doing, and it was just like an intense absorption of all the knowledge, mm-hmm. specifically like cars, computers, and mm-hmm. just various things. And I remember you had made the comment like, well, you have a lot of drive because after your whole day of everything you do, you go back and you keep learning about other things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember that comment because that's not how that was told. That wasn't conveyed to me anybody else's view and that's not how i saw it. i saw it as like just being lazy mm-hmm. but like you're not wrong like you weren't wrong then you're not wrong now like that's exactly why i was watching it so like even in that sense like and i don't know if that changed what you did per se but it's that observation that like another individual will make that we aren't necessarily aware of that they will then either imitate or try to put into their lives somehow yeah because they see that benefit i think so i mean i saw you learning all this stuff and i was like man he's just learning a bunch about a lot of things right now yeah i wonder what would happen if i tried that also yeah it's like we went down different roads but i was definitely like i should try to learn things more yeah i mean like 
I think your road's a lot more. I clearly, I think your road is a lot more higher level academia, mm-hmm. and my road is a lot more just like applicable blue collar kind of esque things. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like this podcast only works because of you knowing what you know and what I know what I know. Yeah, I would agree. So, and we're running a bit low on time. Okay. So I'm going to do one more quote here that I think is going to be good. We made it through almost all the quotes. Oh, we did. So we're going to call it good for these ones. Okay. But I want to do this one last one to set up for next week. Okay. When we get into myth. Okay. Here we go. And yeah, just to be clear, he, he does call Christianity a myth. So keep that in mind when he says myth. Yeah. So that you understand completely what he's saying. So per usual, I'll just read it straight through. It's a little bit longer. Um, that's just a little longer. <clears throat> just a little bit. And I'm finishing my tea. To be prepped and ready to go. Mm, okay. Yes. Narrative description of archetypal behavioral patterns and representational schemas, myth, appears as an essential precondition for social construction and subsequent regulation of complexly civilized individual presumption, action, and desire. Can I be honest with you? Tell me about it. Um, I'm going to tell you about it. I stopped listening after the first like three words because you I just want me to break it up. I just want you to break it up. I couldn't, I, I gave up to be completely you know honest. What? Here's the you. thing. It's a fun game for anyone listening to try and keep up to these. Cause they're hard enough to read straight through. Oh yeah. So that's and a fun. E- and I think you're doing a great job at like reading it and kind of like uh, emphasizing the right. Yeah. yeah. I'm trying to pay attention to that. And even then, <laughs> Oh, I know. I know it's tough. It's a, it's a game for everybody listening or watching. Um, to figure this out before Evan has to explain it. Yeah. So pause now. You get five seconds. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Come back when you think you got the answer. All right, here we go. Yeah. So first, he's defining myth okay. as narrative descriptions mm-hmm. of behavioral patterns and representational schemas. Okay. Okay, so I'll break that down further. <laughs> you understand behavioral patterns. Yeah. Uh, representational schemas would be like our way of seeing the world. It's representation, or it's a schema. Let me look up the definition of a schema for you. Yeah, let's let's get this. Uh, look up the uh, first grade oh. definition. It's a representation of a plan or theory in the form of an outline or model. Yes. So it would be like, you using Christianity, it would be the way that we see Jesus live, for example. Mm-hmm. That's our model for how we should live. So that's the representational okay. schema okay. is the way that he lives. Yes. So a myth is a narrative description of the behavioral patterns and representational schema. Okay. He's saying that myths are an essential precondition for social construction and subsequent uh, regulation of complexly civilized individual presumption, action, and desire. So is the first half that I understand, the second half that he throws me under a bus. So, <sighs> essential precondition means just that it needs to happen okay. for the existence of the following. Right. Um, okay. First, social construction. Mm-hmm. We can't form together without some sort of um, myth that tells us how to act, basically. Right, yeah. Um, so he's saying that without myth, we can't have social construction. Um, and then after there's social construction, 
what follows is regulation of complexly civilized individual presumption, action, and desire. Which why means, is that just one? Why is that one concept? Because it is. I mean, technically, it's three, but the complexly civilized individual applies to those three things. So, pretty much, what it means is that myths are necessary to regulate our presumptions, our actions, and our desires. Okay. So, this means that the importance of myths is twofold. One, it allows for social construction or society to exist. Okay. Two, it tells us how to regulate our presumptions, our actions, and our desires individually. Okay. So the importance of the myth or narrative is twofold. It helps society, society and yourself. I know the answer to this question, and we can definitely talk about this and elaborate on this, but just to kind of say things blatantly, why doesn't he believe in a myth if he can acknowledge the benefits, almost arguably, as he says, the necessity of a myth? Mm-hmm. Because I think... At least at the time of writing this book, he saw the he saw them in the same category of it's he saw them in accordance with their function. Okay. So he saw that they were useful. Right. So he's pretty much trying to say why are they useful? Okay, if they're useful then use them. Right. I know that's such like a blunt way to put it, but Yeah, like... well and that's like what we do. That's but why he's that's not. why there's he does use them though. Oh. Because we all live in a Judeo-Christian value system. Right. Generally speaking. He lives in that as well. Mm, okay. So it's I like what Nietzsche better. said. The problem and the reason that that would eventually deteriorate is because you're trying to... This is what we talked about early on. Um, is... Let's see. I actually have it right here. So Nietzsche said back in the first episode... Christianity presupposes that man cannot know what is good for him and what is evil. He believes in God, who alone knows. So he says, Christian morality stands or falls with God. If one does not believe in God, then he cannot claim such a belief in the morality, because it has no justification. Yeah. That's exactly what we're talking about here. Okay. Is that, that's why he thought it would deteriorate, is because we don't have a justification for the values that we're currently living under. I think we're watching it deteriorate now. Right. And per- is this the conversation we've already had? Uh, I don't know, but probably. <laughs> I guess I look at it. We can just be short and sweet about it, just in case. Okay, uh, short and sweet. Um, without the idea, with without following God, who's placed it on our hearts and, mm-hmm. and has just told us, murder is wrong. Yeah. Murder, period, of any type. If There's no ifs, ands, or buts. Murder. Nope, don't do that. Yeah. And then we see all these abortion laws that have been increasingly changing and mm-hmm. allowing different reasons and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which scientifically speaking at its core is a life. Mm-hmm. That's what that is. And you're taking a life. That is murder. Mm-hmm. So without having that fundamental placement of God telling you to do something that don't murder, it becomes less and less important because more watered down. I think that's why we're seeing these kind of wishy-washy kind of rules and laws and stuff Mm. because i mean california was talking about making it legal 
Well, and it's like, that's what Martin Luther was talking about, was that anything that, any rationality that posits anything outside of the Bible, mm-hmm. I mean, he called it heresy, or heresy, but the point of it is that humans can rationalize pretty much anything. Yeah. Which is the importance of the Bible, is it tells us how to act because it's not presumptions about what's best. Yeah. We can guide ourselves to our own way of living, mm-hmm. but it's going to be flawed. Well, as imperfect we people. Right. And so I think the reason that the Christian Judeo system is so long lasting is because it's been so successful because where did it come from? Not from us. Yeah. And it's just deteriorating because people don't believe in God. Um, that number's going down. Yeah. I think the most recent Gallup poll that came out, and maybe it's dated now, but last time I looked, it was 81% of Americans identify as believing in a God, mm. whereas in 2017, it was 87%. Yeah, and I'm sure before... It was even higher. Yeah, so that, it's, it's going down, and that's... It's... Well, what's interesting is, like, as you as you look through society, society you see high rates of success by following that Judeo-Christian yeah. value system, and then the second you stop following it, or there's an, an amount of population that is significant beyond, like, you know, abysmal mm-hmm. influence... Um, once that starts changing, you're basically inputting imperfections into a system that is perfect at least in our eyes as we believe in christ you know so once you start injecting imperfections into this perfect system yeah it's going to crumble and i think you can see that in like success and societal structures etc and i think um we'll do finishing thoughts here Mm -hmm. um because we're just about out of time but i think the other side of it that he doesn't explicitly mention there. I guess he does mention it, but we just like don't, I think, think about it, mm-hmm. is if you're not following the quote-unquote myth or narrative of the Christian uh, religion, mm-hmm. you're following some other narrative. Yeah. Which is also going to guide literally every single aspect of your life. Yeah. And that's what Peterson talks about now, is even if you're not religious or something like that, you have to view the world through some sort of ethical framework. Yeah. Because otherwise there's just too much and you would never know what to do at all. So you have to have something guiding you. Yeah. And I think that's the danger of it. Mm-hmm. Of not having. Yeah, of not having, yeah. Yeah. I think that's why you hear a lot of people like Michael Knowles talk about secular culture as being its own religion, ultimately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is because if you don't have that like fundamental narrative that you follow that comes, at least in our worlds, comes from a perfect place. Yeah you have a fundamental narrative that you follow that comes from an imperfect place mm-hmm. or worst case, which I think is something we're seeing more and more often a malicious intended place, mm. you know, where they intend to hurt you or mislead you. Mm-hmm. I think we see a lot of that. in like, unfortunately our media is they intend to mislead you, which is if you follow that. And that's because they're right operating here. on their own corrupted myths yeah it's telling them how to act in some way that's not yeah beneficial and ultimately it's just unfortunate yeah so that's all i've got mm-hmm. we got through quite a bit yeah more than i thought we would oh for sure that was a heavy episode that was a really heavy so, episode good job sticking with that one yeah um any closing thoughts remarks just i think i'm good okay. i use a lot of brain power so i'm chilling yeah i did a lot of thinking <laughs> I, if you want to call it that, 
<laughs> a lot of hot tub soaking. Yeah. Hot tub of knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, thanks everybody for uh, listening to episode four. That's pretty cool that we're on episode four already. Um, hope you followed along this uh, very dense podcast as much as we tried to break it down it i do feel it still ended up pretty heavy yeah i think so but that's where the good stuff is yeah that's exactly where the good stuff is so if you liked our previous shows and you really enjoyed this one stay tuned for episode five which will come out next monday um and just stay tuned for the rest subscribe or do whatever you got to do to be updated on when these episodes are released Um, Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy your day, week, or whatever, whenever you're listening to. And we'll see you next time. See ya.